Welcome to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast. On this show, we share Ginger's journey and speak with subject matter experts about a variety of dementia-related topics. Ginger, a former English teacher and librarian, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2019. This diagnosis has changed her world and has given her a unique perspective on life and living. I'm Christoph, Ginger's son and full-time caregiver. I've created this podcast as a way to share the best practices I'm learning about caring for a person with dementia. Along the way, we'll document my mother's journey through her unique storytelling. You can subscribe to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast and find all the resources we discuss at lwalz.com. In this episode, I interview Mary Moreland, author of The Gap Between, Loving and Supporting Someone with Alzheimer's. Mary is a lawyer and single mother of two teenage boys who suddenly became responsible for her mother after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. We discuss the book, which is full of the things she would have found helpful as a caregiver, how Mary approached the grieving process as her mother succumbed to the impacts of dementia, and how caregivers can refuel. You can find Mary and her book at marymoreland.com. Well, hi, Mary. Welcome to uh, Living with Alzheimer's podcast. And I'm wondering if you could introduce yourself to our listeners so that they know a little bit about your background. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you, Christoph, for inviting me on your show. I really appreciate it. And my name's Mary Moreland. I live in Houston, Texas. I'm a single parent of two sons. They're teenagers. And I was the primary caregiver for my mother um, during her voyage, I guess you'd say, through Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's uh, from 2012 until 2020 when she passed away during the pandemic. Okay. So I understand from reading about you that you're a maritime lawyer. Well, <laughs> no, I, um, I actually, many, many years ago, I worked in marine insurance on shipping accidents, which okay. is a very obscure thing to do. Um, and, but I really wanted to move to New York city. Okay. And that was the only job I could find where they would hire me. So that's what I did. And through doing that, I, I worked with lawyers who represented cargo and those lawyers planted the idea of maybe you should go to law school and you could do maritime law. So I did go to law school, but, and I, and I got a maritime law certificate, but I never practiced it. Okay. Um, I've been practicing for 25 years and I've always worked on projects outside the United States. Um, and I've also done a lot of ethics and compliance work too. Okay. Yeah. I have a nephew, my sister's son, who is a senior this year and is looking at colleges and really is interested in law oh. uh, eventually. So when maritime law came up, I was like, well, there isn't a path I had never thought of before. It seems obscure. <laughs> but then my brother said, yeah, those containers fall off the ships all the time. You got to have 
you know, all kinds of things. Yeah, those were some of the accidents that I worked on where, you know, maybe a ship had to start listing or, you know, they had to ground themselves and sometimes the containers were thrown overboard. That is true. Mm -hmm. So my brother was right. He is right. Maybe my nephew is interested in this area of law. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned that you were your mom's caregiver for a decade. What um, were the circumstances that you became her caregiver? Well, I think the circumstances must be similar to a lot of people. My mother had been diagnosed in the fall of 2011 and In June of 2012, my father, who was her caregiver, passed away unexpectedly. And I knew that eventually I would be assuming that role. We had talked about that. And I think like in a lot of families, it's sort of obvious, Mm -hmm. you know, who's going to be doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they lived in Houston. I lived in Houston. I lived like a mile away from them. We were very, very close. I was over at their house all the time. Um, But all of a sudden, just in a blink of an eye on a weekend, I stepped into those shoes. And I remember, you know, when it happened, looking up and just looking at my mother, who was so confused, didn't comprehend what was happening. Um, Very just very confused and look so vulnerable and, Mm -hmm. you know, just out of it. Um, And I just remember looking up at her and thinking, oh my goodness, like, like, and this is going to sound terrible, but I thought I I have a third child. Like, like Jane is like, now I have three. I don't just have two. I have three. Um, and, and I remember that day just thinking, because my father passed away in the home, just thinking, well, where is mom going to sleep tonight? Mm-hmm. You know, because like I had small children. So, and I brought her back to my house and we slept in the same, <laughs> the same bed together. You know, she packed a little bag and, and I thought, well, tomorrow I'll just have to figure out kind of you know, what it is that we're going to do going forward, because even though I had thought about what it was, you know, that I would be filling in that role, I hadn't really thought about the specifics Mm -hmm. of what would happen the day that happened. Right. Right. Yeah. And thankfully I had a little bit of time to think about things. So it was interesting that the path sounds fairly similar your mom was diagnosed in the fall of 11. Mine was diagnosed in the fall of 19. Um, the, you know, the your dad was taking care of her there for a minute until he passed, as was my father until he passed oh. uh, about a year later. Uh, although they were in assisted living by that time because my brother and sister and I thought that that was a good situation for them. So, you know, he had health issues also, which is what he died of. Um, and, you know, it just made sense for them to be in a facility where he'd be able to take care of her better and there'd be activities for her and the like. But then between the pandemic and his death, she was really isolated Mm. and it became pretty obvious that something needed to change. And then we all had the conversation, the siblings and, you know, like, like you said, it's kind of obvious who 
will step in and I, I was like this kind of fits guys I'm, I mean I was I wasn't next door to them by any means but I had to move from Kansas City back to Michigan in order to take care of her but I did have time at least to prep for that do a little bit of homework ahead of time and figure out what this might look like but I was still overwhelmed when I walked in the first time as her caregiver and now she's back home and I'm officially it and what do I do? You know, I mean, it's just <laughs> like, I don't, uh, and we muddled through. And at that time, because she was still in the early stages of Alzheimer's, now she's in middle stage. Um, she was fairly competent to understand what was happening, that she was leaving assisted living, going back to the house that we were almost ready to sell. Um, and then decided, nope, let's, keep this house because it's familiar to her. Um, and, you know, now she hardly recognizes the house. I mean, it's, so it's like at that time she kind of recognized what was going along, thought it was a good plan, was grateful for that as the plan because she hated being isolated in that situation with the pandemic and all the, you know, quarantining that they were having to do to be safe. Um, and so she was really happy to get, into her house again and you know be able to walk around in her yard and do some gardening and that kind of thing so um it all made sense and as we go along now the journey continues to change and so i've got to expect that the same thing happened for you you figured some things out and then there'd be some unraveling and then you'd have to figure things out again and you go through that process probably several times oh Yes, for sure. And I think a difficult aspect of that is, at least in my case, I kind of would reach a normal, mm -hmm. you know, like this is what we do. For example, by my children, if they were in a play at school or something at the school, I would pick my mother up and we would go see the play or see the school event. That was what we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, on the weekends, maybe we go out to lunch. We would go to a restaurant maybe as her disease progressed, we would need to sit in a quiet part of the restaurant. Maybe mm -hmm. I would need to order for her instead of her ordering for herself. But that was what we did. That was our routine right? until, you know, one day it's not. And I think a lot of times her disease would progress and I wouldn't appreciate how much it had progressed until for example, I would take her, I took her to an event at the school and it was just overwhelming. The clapping was loud. The auditorium was dark. There were too many people around. And whereas the last time we had been there, I know she had no idea what was going on, but she really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. She was full of anxiety and very uncomfortable and looked at me and said, I need to leave you know, it's time for me to leave. And there were a lot of instances like that where I was sort of expecting things to be one way and I hadn't appreciated the progression of the disease. Right. Another example, I remember uh, picking her up to take her to the doctor and she had always been able to get in the car. And then that progressed to being able to get in the car, but I needed to put her seatbelt on right. and then that progressed to, well, she can get in the car, but we can kind of do it together and I can tell her how to turn her body and sit and she'll understand that. 
but then that'll progress to why am I getting what? Right. <laughs> like, like I, what do you want me to do? And, uh, you know, until eventually I had to find a different type of transportation for her okay. because it, you know, as the disease progresses and progresses, you know, she was using a cane and then she was on a walker and then she was in a wheelchair and then she couldn't get out of the wheelchair by herself. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't hit anything like that yet. So we're going to get to your book, uh, okay. which was happened to be my next question, but there's a question that I had further along that's exactly on this topic. So for me, I struggle with gracefully rolling with those changes that you mentioned several examples of. So, you know, when my mom came out of her room half dressed and she had a stack of letters in her hands that she had been organizing, I was upset that she had gotten herself distracted on something that wasn't important because we were supposed <laughs> to be someplace. And I was like, mom, go get dressed. And, you know, it did not even occur to me that her needs had changed. I just thought she was allowing herself to be distracted and it was part of the disease, you know, just like her brain was misfiring, you know, and I was like, <clears throat> um, you know, so I felt frustrated first. And then, uh, after a couple of days, after more pattern like that, it was finally when the light bulb came on and I went, Oh my goodness, she can't do this process anymore. So, you know, here's this, former teacher, former librarian, very organized, very logical. And oh my goodness, did I get raised in that? Like <laughs> <laughs> I got praised when I followed good process and I got some lectures when I didn't. And, you know, so now suddenly she can't follow a process, even like getting dressed without help. And Christoph, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but how did you first notice that her mind was slipping was it because she couldn't do one of her processes that she that she had always done how did you know that it, well the the first thing that i noticed and my siblings had had similar uh experiences was when she just repeated herself so i came uh back from kansas city on a business trip and spent some time with my folks on a weekend and when I got in the house, she greeted me and wanted to feed me right away, which was great. And while she's getting into the fridge, she pulls out this container that was called living lettuce. It was a container that had a little well in the bottom that had some water in it to keep the lettuce crisper longer. And she was really excited about it because it was new, <laughs> new technology. You know, it's like, hey, did you see this living lettuce before? I was like, no, I haven't seen that. That's cool. And, you know, like 30 minutes later, she pulled it out of the fridge and told me about it like she had never told me about it before all over again. And then later in the evening again. And I was like, wait, what's going on? I've heard I now this is the third time you're telling me this. Like, I've never heard it before. Um, so that was the first clue. And then there were things that just kind of went haphazard. They got a cell phone shut off because she got the red of Verizon and the red of the, you know, the uh, 
other company. I don't even remember who it was now. But anyway, the the logos looked the same to her. She was, she was paying one and she wasn't paying the other. And then there was this problem. And then the sprinkler system didn't get shut down properly one fall. And they had the thing freeze and burst. And they had a, mm. a water emergency. And that was like, okay, something's going on. Um, so those were the signs. And, and during that time, she had already, because her mom had been diagnosed with dementia just a few years previous to her, actually, she lived to her 90s. Um, until she had, you know, been declared, uh, as having Alzheimer's. Um, so my mom had left a burner on, you know, in that same time period and walked oh, out of the room and came yeah. back and realized she had left it and freaked her out. And so she checked with her doctor herself in 2017. And then I asked her to check with her doctor again in 2018. And in 2019, I just called her doctor and I said, could you have ginger in something's not right. Mm. And that was when she was finally diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's. So it was this progression of things that seemed weird. Um, you know, like something wasn't going right, but I didn't know what it was. And we didn't, that one of the reasons that I have the podcast is because nobody was talking about it in my circle. Nobody was talking about dementia it wasn't until I started sharing my story with friends and co colleagues and the like that other people would say, oh, yeah, my grandma or my parent or whatever. And I was like, why don't we talk about this? Because I didn't know a thing, you know, I wasn't prepared for any of it. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And just getting to my book, uh, that was part of the reason why I wrote the book, because okay. after spending and I was very fortunate because my my mother had private caregivers mm -hmm. um, that we started with very slowly and then you know kind of ramped them up and then eventually she did go into um, a home mm -hmm. um, which actually I, I was so worried when she went there because I thought gosh she's gonna miss her house so much she had lived in our home for 40 years and it was a surprisingly easy transition, maybe because she was further along in the disease, right. mm -hmm. you know, than we had realized. Uh, but I really just wanted to share the knowledge that I had gained. And when, when my mother was diagnosed, we didn't tell anyone about it mm -hmm. because I think we never kind of openly discussed it, but I think we were all concerned about that stigma Yeah, and what kind of situation would she be in if people knew that she had Alzheimer's and right. it was out of a desire to protect her, uh, which in retrospect, I don't want to be too hard on us was not the best approach, you know, I, you know, I think we make the best choices. We know how at the time yep. you do at the yep. time and you can't go back and beat yourself up and right. feel like, Oh, but just for purposes of learning or just kind of sharing my own knowledge. Um, I wanted to say that it, and that is why I wrote the book just okay. because what else am I going to do with all that knowledge? 
<laughs> so, right, exactly. You know, so, like, please. I mean, I, it really is kind of the book. I wish I could go back in time and hand it to the younger Mary Moreland and say, look, like, this oh, is what yes. you need. This is going to make it easier for you. It talks right. about, you know, finding care and diagnosis and end of life and legal documentation and everything you need to know. I really did take some time to think about what, what are the things that would have been helpful to me? And then that was how I came up with the themes for the chapters. Okay, great. Cause you know, so, so we've been beating around the bush. There's a book There's a book. <laughs> and, it, and it's called <laughs> the gap between loving and supporting someone with Alzheimer's. So the loving and and supporting someone who lives with Alzheimer's, I totally understand. And I've ordered the book, by the way. Oh, thank you. thank you. So, um, but what does the gap between refer to? Okay. So my mother was a poet and mm -hmm. a writer. And in between each chapter, there's one of her poems. Oh, um, nice. And I was able to find poems that actually kind of go... I, I can't wait for you to read them because I, I hope that you enjoy them. I think they're really wonderful. Um, and they're in between the chapters and they kind of go with the chapters. But the title, The Gap Between, is taken from one of her poems. Got it. And a lot of her poems are actually about the relationship with her own mother, who did not have dementia, by the way, although her father, my grandfather, Obviously, nobody talked about it, but obviously, in retrospect, he had Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. Mm -hmm. um, and the line is, you know, she's thinking about her mother and they have this shared obsession of gardening and taking care of plants, but they're very different people. And she says, in the gap between us, someone could plant sequoias. <laughs> because sequoias you know need a lot of space Our, yes yes right <laughs> and so that that was where the title came from but i think it when i reflected upon the title you know it's so great because it, it's the gap between mother and daughter it's the gap that widens as your alzheimer's you know progresses yep. you inevitably become further and further apart but that's that's where the title came from. Oh, I love it now. Yeah. Now, thank you for explaining because I I looked at it several times and thought I really don't have an idea what that means. <laughs> should I know what that means? Yes, I don't right. know. <laughs> so, what should people expect, or what do you hope that people would get out of reading the book? Well, um, in each chapter, there's a memoir section which talks about practical things between me and my mother, mm -hmm. you know, like when she wanted to drive and we didn't want her to drive because we didn't think it was safe, like kind of the practical of how we address that. Yep. Or there was a period of time when there were boxes in the garage and somehow she decided that I was kicking her out of her home Okay. and I was moving in with my children and just, she was going to be homeless Okay. On the streets of Houston. And she actually uh, called at that time. She could still call people on the phone and she called people and told them that Mary's kicking me out of my home. Okay. You know, how could she do that to me? But, and it was all because there were these boxes in the garage and 
actually my brother had this idea of let's just label the boxes Jane's belongings belongs to Jane. And then when she looked at them, she no longer thought that they were my boxes. They were her boxes. She had no idea what was inside of them, but that whole kind of delusion of I'm being kicked out of my home just went away. So I've, I've gone through and just kind of described just things that happened in our relationship or as her disease progressed and tried to show the practical in the memoir section. And then the second half of each chapter is a research tips section, drawing from different sources. Mm-hmm. Um, but my hope is the book is practical. I tried to write it in a conversational tone, and it's from the point of view of someone in the sandwich generation. Okay. Because I, I do think when you're managing the small children and you know, the mom, the the mom, kid, uh, you know, that's a unique experience to have. And then one thing that surprised me about that was how much I had defined myself by someone being in the sandwich generation. And it's, it's the only generation I can think of. Tell me, Christoph, if you can think of a different one where you're in it and then you're no longer in it. Mm. You're, you know, you're in the sandwich generation, but then your loved one passes away. Yeah. And you're no longer in the sandwich generation. And then your children kind of grow up. Right. And um, so when she passed away, I it I don't know, I can hardly really express kind of how that felt because for eight years. I had accepted the fact that, oh, I'm, you know, I have my children that I take care of, and then I'm the caregiver for my mom. Although probably every caregiver goes through that because when you spend, you know, so much of your life, even if you have private caregivers or your loved ones in an assisted living home or a memory care floor, you're still thinking about that person with whatever you do. And then all of a sudden you know, that's a big part of your life. And then all of a sudden it ends. It's just, a, I, I have to imagine other people feel the same way, but it's a, it's a weird type of loss on top of the grief of living, of losing your loved one, if right. that makes sense. And some of it may have to do with, at least I'm speaking for myself. I often have, defined myself at least in part by what I do you know well that's a good point yeah and so then when that thing isn't there anymore I go what am I then you know yeah and and so there is that whole reevaluation of self that goes on at those times of change and that can feel like a loss especially when it's a struggle to come up with the next stage that other stage was so clear i knew what i needed right. to do and where i needed to be and now i gotta figure it all out again yeah so to me i can definitely see that so in the book then because i know you journaled along the way with your journey so some of what you had journaled shows up in the book well yeah, so I actually didn't start out intending to write a book. Right. Um, 
I, when my mom, you know, it was during COVID, it was, well, I put her on hospice. And just as an aside, I had always thought hospice was something when you're, when the person you're caring for is on death's door, but with Alzheimer's, you can actually um, receive hospice much earlier than you think you might be able to. Okay. Because when it came time for me to put my mother on hospice and I was looking for a, you know, a hospice provider, I realized that half the floor was on hospice, <laughs> like, oh, wow. you know, and they had been, and it, the hospice, you know, has a lot of, um, it just means the care is, is not focused on curing your loved one, just making your loved one comfortable. comfortable. Um, and they also have services for the caregiver as well. And they also had really great suggestions about, you know, a different type of wheelchair would be more comfortable for her. And, um, and they were able to go out and procure all those things and use her insurance for it. Uh, but that was an aside. But when I did that and it was COVID and everyone was so isolated, um, I actually went online and got an internet therapist uh -huh. yep. because I thought, you know, I'm in my house with my two teenage sons and, and there's really a limit. Like I, I need another outlet besides talking to my children right. about this. And he encouraged me to start writing things down. And then when I showed what I had written to other people, uh, people told me, Mary, this is actually very helpful. Like this could really be very helpful for someone mm -hmm. if you shared your experience. And so that was how the book started. It, it started as my journal. And then the more I thought about it, I, I thought, well, you know, I, I think it would be valuable to share that experience. And the Alzheimer's Association statistic is one in three people in the United States dies with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. Which and is the a world, crazy number. Which is crazy, crazy number. One in three. Yeah. One in three. And the World Health Organization statistic is that one at every three seconds, someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. Wow. And so it's just a brain disease. Like, coronary yep. artery disease is a heart disease. And, you know, just reflecting about how we really hadn't talked about it and how helpful it would have been to talk about it and how everyone knows someone who is living with dementia or caring for someone living with dementia. I thought, you know, maybe there is something of value that I could offer by chronicling our experience yeah so i also have an internet therapist okay who i, who I got during the <laughs> pandemic yeah uh and and that was for a, a few reasons because I, I knew i was going to be making this big change i wanted to make sure i had really thought it through you mm -hmm. know and felt it through because i'm better with the head than i am with the gut you know and uh <laughs> so let's make sure that i've really felt what I feel about this and not just thunk it. And, uh, so anyway, I, I finally, cause she's been encouraging me to journal for a long time and I've been lazy about it because I used to journal religiously and, um, then I just kind of got over it. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, writing <laughs> it sounds like work. So 
I bought journals. I have I have a whole journal. I can't show it to you now because my screen is obliterated. You have the blurred. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, I have a journal now. So you inspired me. I'm going to get back to journaling. May not be much, but that's okay because I need to reflect on things anyway. Um, and that and that really brings me to this whole question of I was telling you about how my first response is often frustration when there's a changing need, um, which for me I've now recognized is my response to loss because it's, it is a loss. Things changed. Um, now it's going to be different, maybe harder, but I lost the, what it was before. And you know, my first response being frustration, that's not, really beneficial for anyone <laughs> takes me a minute to catch on and slow my roll and you know get back uh to a balance so how do you how did you deal with those changes how do you recommend people deal with loss and grief and all the stages of that well i will uh honestly admit i don't think i dealt with it all that well um because i just didn't really want to talk about it mm-hmm you know, and, um, but I, I can see our personalities are different because I never responded with, you know, frustration or agitation. My go-to response was sadness, mm -hmm. you know, and just thinking, wow, three months ago when I used to, we used to go shopping together for clothes not very often. And boy, that was hard, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. just the whole, like at first it wasn't that hard, but then no, you stay in the dressing room, you know, like here are the clay. I mean, it, it was just, we had to stop doing that. And then I started bringing her clothes mm -hmm. that I would buy. And she really liked that. And then after a period of time, she didn't really care. Right. You know, whereas before she was always so proud of how she looked and she always liked to be very put together. And so for me, when things like that would happen, it just made me sad. Right. You know? And see, that would probably be a healthier way, but I start with the head. And so I have the thought of, you know, the frustration comes first. It's a couple days later or a couple hours later that I realize that my gut finally catches up to my brain and says, wait a second, there's some stuff going on here. And then that's when I feel the sad hmm. is the later on. And then I can actually process the loss and move on. Um, but yeah, we, we just start differently. Um, I do <laughs> thankfully eventually get to the processing the loss and that's why I have a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> so but it's helpful to have a counselor to talk about with these things so that you don't go off the rails because I think otherwise, um, this would be an impossible task and an overwhelming task. So, yeah, I mean, I wish in retrospect that I had talked about things more, you know, um, but people deal with situations differently. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 But it is just successive loss. And, and I do think it's important to allow yourself to move through each of those 
losses. That's just how the disease of dementia works. So tell me more about middle stage, late stage, end stage, because I'm seeing middle stage now. Um, and speaking about not talking about things, I haven't really heard much about the late stage or the end stage. We've seen a bit because we've gone and volunteered at assisted living in their memory unit. And so I can see some people in different stages, but I didn't journey with them to that point. So I don't really know what that's like. Okay. And is there something specific? Oh, I'm just wondering what the process was for you in dealing with loss or grieving along the way because it's got to change from when it's practical things like I can't take her shopping anymore to she can't eat by herself anymore right yeah um well I think you just accept the fact that you have to meet your loved one where he or she is mm -hmm. and I remember um she was living in an assisted living facility and they called me and said, she really needs to be on a memory care floor. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was not right. <laughs> right. You know, because I'm still like a little in denial. Right. And, um, and so I decided to go and spend the entire day with her, just go through every class she went through, eat every meal with her, just spend, you know, take a, few days off, just been concentrated time with her. And, you know, it, it's upsetting. I mean, they were right. It, her mm -hmm. disease had progressed and she just wasn't capable. They had classes and she wasn't capable of following the classes anymore. Mm -hmm. And then on the memory care floor, the classes were easier. So it, it actually was a lot more enjoyable for her. Um, but I think you just take the changes as they come. And sometimes there are changes that you're not expecting. Like mm -hmm. my mother was very easy from the perspective that she was very nice and docile. Yep. You know, she, she did not have sundowning oh. um, like at all. Wow. Uh, in fact, when she would see someone else being upset, late in the day, sometimes she would look at me and say, what's his problem? <laughs> like, wow. you know, even when she was very advanced in her disease, but then all of a sudden she did start becoming aggressive. Okay. Um, and she started trying to hit people and she actually started trying to bite people. Okay. Um, and when I went to kind of spend more concentrated time with her, I, I could see why she was doing that because she just didn't understand what was happening. Mm -hmm. You know, why are these people touching my clothes? Well, because right. they're helping you, you know, get dressed or brush your teeth or do something. You know, why is this hand coming around in front of me? Well, because someone's putting a plate of food in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember she wouldn't pick up her fork. I don't know if she forgot for a while, if you, you know, said, Oh, you need to take a bite or pick up your fork. Like she would. But I think after a while, she like, sometimes she would kind of forget what she was doing at the table. Right. Um, so it, it, I think 
I don't know. One thing I noticed after she had passed was I had become so entrenched in the disease and, you know, you incrementally have these losses of different abilities until you kind of get used to that loss and then something else comes and then you're used to that loss and then something else comes and you're used to that loss. And you, sometimes I think you don't really realize how far things have progressed, you know, because you just kind of become accustomed to sort of going downhill. Right. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. It uh, does. Yeah. So I, I think, I, I don't know if the grieving process is any different, at, at least for me through the stages of the disease, because it was always just another incremental loss mm-hmm. of an ability. So the loss has changed, but the grieving but, process really, but did the not. grieving was yes. Yeah. Uh, at least for me, it was kind of the same grieving process. Um, and then of course, at the very end of the disease, you know, different people are different, but my mother, she really needed help eating, but she would still eat. You know, a lot of people, they won't eat at all. They'll just stop eating. Uh, but she couldn't get out of a bed. You know, it was really just going to visit her and her just lying there, you know, in her bed kind of staring at me. And I would wonder if she knew like if she knew who I was or, which I, I don't think she did at all. Of course she didn't. Um, and I would talk to her and wonder, does she recognize the sound of my voice or is And I always did feel like my voice was calming to her and it was harder and harder to find things to do. Uh, one thing that always worked though was singing. Okay. Yeah. And if, if she started getting agitated or if I was just at a loss for anything to do and I wanted to do something instead of just sitting there, I could start singing like you are my sunshine. Sure. And then she would start, that was just like a song. She never forgot, you know, she would start singing too. And that's what we would do. Huh. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, one of the staff in the memory care unit that we volunteer in said that, the two things that seem to be held on to the longest are the ability to read and the ability to sing. Oh. And so, yeah, there was a lady who I met in one of the first weeks of that we were volunteering and she was almost nonverbal uh, for the hour that we were there until um, the the manager in that area said, you know, can you sing that song for us from the yeah. play? And she had she had this musical song, and man, she, she was hitting the notes, and <laughs> it was clear that she had been in this production, right? Probably a leading role. I mean, she had a great voice, and she knew all the lyrics. And I mean, but then, you know, the next time I'd see her, she had very little to say or very little, very little interaction that happened otherwise was very strange to me. It was just like, man, I am fascinated and scared by this disease. You know, it's just, it's, it is scary. And it's also fascinating at the same time. Like the mind is strange. The mind is strange. Yeah. Because 
I do remember in our last few days, she was still thanking people, Okay. but, but not having any type of conversation. And I remember thinking, gosh, she is really just out of it, you know, but then someone would, you know, hand her a yogurt and kind of help her uh-huh. to eat it. And she would look up and say, thank you. Nice. And it would sound so lucid, huh. you know? And it's hard, I think, with Alzheimer's or dementia, when you have those moments where your loved one says something that makes sense, you know, in the context of what's going on, and they're very far in the disease, at least for myself, it was very hard not to think like, oh, wait a minute. Right. Maybe she's not as far along as I thought, because she just said thank you, which means she understands that they did something nice for her, and she's thanking them. You know, but it's, it's just the mind is such a confusing muscle. I think it is a muscle, right? Yeah. And that's actually in uh, the episode that I have with the neuropsychologist, he says the brain is a muscle and it gets tired. And that's a lot of what happens around sundowning is this just done for the day, you know, (laughs) been using that muscle enough and now, you know, it's tired. Um, So I I was, you know, fascinated by that, but it's our bodies again, you know, are really pretty complex and fascinating and scary also. So yeah, um, I am very interested to hear more from your book about your insights, because uh, there are a lot of times where I am making adjustments as best I can along the way. um, But I sure would you know, benefit by other people's input and experience. So I'm I'm looking forward to reading the book. Yeah. And that was one thing I found, you know, as I was writing the book and I would reach out to people who I knew who, who were caregivers or they had a relative with dementia and I would ask them, you know, did you have legal documentation? Oh, and they'd say, oh, we tried to get that, but my dad was just so against it. And so how did you talk him into it? And then just from talking to all these different people about how they had handled these situations, uh, it's just so interesting. You just learn so much from, you know, books where people write their experiences or podcasts like yours, where people are just openly sharing mm-hmm. what their experience is like. And, it, and it's very helpful. Yep. I agree. And I, I hope this show is too. So I, you know, I appreciate when a person like yourself comes on and, and speaks to their experience because it is exactly what helps, uh, you know, myself and the listeners. So, um, I noticed that, uh, a portion of the book profits are going toward the Alzheimer's women's auxiliary for resources and education, which is a mouthful aware. It really is a mouthful. Yeah. (laughs) And they're an affiliate of Alzheimer's association. So what efforts and activities are you hoping that these funds are going to help with? Well, originally aware, uh, was not affiliated with the Alzheimer's association. And it was a group of people in Houston who had been affected in, in some way by the disease and Mm -hmm. they wanted to raise money for caregivers. Um, so that people to help people afford having caregivers because it's so expensive. Right. And the lady who spearheaded it was one of my mother's dear friends. Okay. Uh, and now it is affiliated with the Alzheimer's 
association. So the Alzheimer's Association decides where the funds go, mm-hmm. but you know, some go to education, some go to their programs, they to a bunch of different things. But I wanted to donate a percentage of the profits to aware because I just thought it was a great way to honor my mother and mm-hmm. to recognize the efforts of her friends who originally started it, I think like 25 years ago. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And on your uh, website, which is marymoreland.com, uh, which I'll put in the episode description, um, I see all those outlets that you can purchase the book from. There's the, you know, I won't even mention them now. <laughs> people can see them when they want to. I'm not going to put an advertisement out for that one big place that sells things. Uh, so anyway, but I, I think that ordering directly from your website is the best overall for for use. And other authors would be the same thing. Can, can you tell me more about that? Because are those organizations taking a cut? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the percentage, at at least for me, the percentage of royalty that you get depends upon where the book sells. And if you buy it directly from the website, you're basically buying it directly from the publisher. Got it. Um, So for me personally, that's the best way for someone to buy a book. And, you know, I'm not worried about the Stephen Kings of the world who have (laughs) so many books out there they're not they're not hurting but but for uh you know a first time author with yes, one one me. book out there mm-hmm. at this time right i mean that's a it's kind of a big deal to do it the way that benefits the author the best and i like to support authors um and so i i wanted to at least plug that that it's available from your website directly from the publisher yes well thank you thank you for that that's very kind of you well i just again trying to help the people who are doing, you know, the work as, as, because I think sometimes we're just like, I'm just one person, you know, what can I do? But, you know, then there's the one people like yourself who step out and do something, you know, and and it's meaningful. So I like to support that. So is there anything else that you would like to share with listeners or emphasize? Um, well, um, I, I would just say just to not be hard on yourself, which is a very easy thing to do. And, you know, I think always in life, if you're genuinely trying um, the best that you can try and you, you're doing things in good faith, you know, with Alzheimer's, you're inevitably going to turn around and say to yourself, oh, I should have noticed that. Or, or why didn't I think that, why did I think she could get in the car? Of course she can't get in the car. Um, but you know, that's the nature of the disease and you can't control the progression of the disease. And I think it's very important for people, you know, just to be gentle with themselves and, not be too hard on yourself and to do find things like maybe make a list of four or five things that make you happy uh, that you like to do. If it's like gardening or taking a walk or, you know, patting your dog or cooking a meal, whatever it, but reading a newspaper, whatever it might be, because when you're really upset and feeling 
you know, down, it's much easier to say, okay, I'm going to take out my list of things that make me happy. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to pick something from that list and do it for the next, you know, 15 minutes to get my mind off this. Um, Then to sit down and think, oh, I don't know what to do. (laughs) You know, Uh, so I think it's always good to have just kind of a happy list. And accept the fact that some things, you know, I remember when I started caring for my mother, I was so overwhelmed. It just felt like there are so many things that need to be done. Um, And I just threw everything on a list and I had, you know, do, delay, dump. um, And sometimes things you think are so important that you just have to do it. They're not that important. And if you can kind of, you know, maybe write it down and sort of decide what, what are the important things that I need to do now? Like what really matters? Um, I think that can help you feel less overwhelmed if that makes sense. And and it's another form of being gentle with yourself. Oh, okay. Right. That's how I see it. Like I, I don't need to, well, I mean, as a, you know, the overachiever personality type, you know, like if there's 10 things on the list, I don't feel satisfied when, you know, only seven of them have gotten done. Those other three nag at me. And that's just another form of uh, not being gentle with yourself when you can look at it as, yeah, but I kicked butt on seven of them. Yeah, like I did seven of 10. But, you know, I think a lot of, because I'm exactly the same way, you know, I, I mean, I'll look at it and say, why didn't you get all 10 done? Mm-hmm. That was the list for the day. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I think a lot of people who end up in the position as caring for another person have that kind of personality. You know, mm-hmm. you're good at multitasking and you're dependable. And um, so, but, you know, you have to kind of get out of that way of, of thinking. Right. Well, the happy list is... A new one for me. So now that I've ordered those journals and I have one fresh, delivered today, ready to start, well, my first entry will have to be a happy list. <laughs> what makes me happy? So that what when I hit those happy? points of frustration, I can just go, I'm going to go look at my happy I'm going to look at my list and I'm going to pick one of them and do it for 20 minutes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like it. Mary, thank you so much for joining I really appreciate your insights and I very much look forward to reading your book. Well, thank you, Christoph. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Great. Take care. Thanks. All right. Bye now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with Alzheimer's. Please visit the Living with Alzheimer's website at lwalz.com, where you can subscribe to the show and find all the resources we discuss in podcast episodes. We'll see you next time on the Living with Alzheimer's podcast.